Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we are live on tape from Dublin. When the title Fifth Beatle gets knocked around, there's a, usually the same number of candidates that get nominated. And one of them is today's topic, Mr. Derek Taylor. An interesting figure, and I find that when we look at the anthology, he's one of only three people outside the Beatles who gets involved in the project. So he is a man who is very important to the group, uh, both at the time and in the afterlife of the group. Absolutely. And for the purposes of this episode, he gets my vote as the fifth Beatle. Okay. I think he's probably the least well-known fifth Beatle. Good call. (laughs) Well, you know, it, it, it goes George Martin, Brian Epstein, and then Neil, Mal, Derek... And that's about it, really. Billy Preston. Billy Preston and Pete Best and all the rest. We've done an episode on Fifth Beatles. Yeah, we've done that. But we haven't done an episode or two on Derek Taylor. I adore Derek Taylor. Well, the thing about the Derek Taylor story is that, um, you know, if if you're a Beatle fan, and I assume you're listening to Nothing Is Real because you're a Beatle fan, the general knowledge of Derek Taylor is that he's this avuncular, mustachioed, posh-voiced man, usually with a drink in one hand and a cigarette in the other, and he is letting loose a flow of words that is lightening the spirit. It's everything I want to be, Jason. <laughs> well, he, he was the right man at the time. I, th- I think what, you know, as we pull the thread on Derek Taylor, the thing that we'll realise is that a lot of our perceptions about the Beatles and some other acts is because of the way Derek Taylor talked about it and presented it to the world. Yes, he's very influential in that respect. And in a way, you know, the press, the PR guy, he's, you're not supposed to know his name. That's the whole purpose of a PR guy is he, he's, he's informing you about his client. He's not telling you about himself. And Derek is one of those people that certainly in the later years, sort of from 68 on, he's, he's a key player in the story and everybody knows he's a key player. Well, you've hit upon a, an essential truth there, which is the wonder of the Beatles story, which is that even the supporting cast of characters are famous. And yeah. even if you're someone who's not a big Beatles fan, but you've had a look at Get Back, you know who Mal is. Yes. You know? yeah. And there's, there is this group of people who were famous in and of themselves. And, and you're right, Derek Taylor, you don't know the press officer normally for, for a successful group, uh, but he was a bit more than that. He was a bit more than that. And he was very much part of their inner circle. And so the Derek Taylor story, as was, there's kind of a, it, it's basically a three-act play. So at a high level, he, he works for the Beatles in 64, then he goes off and does his own stuff in California, LA for a few years, and then comes back in the Apple years. They're the main three arcs of his story. But there's the preamble, because he's born in 1933, and he's a journalist by trade, isn't he? 
Yes. So the, the first thing there is he is significantly older than the Beatles. So yes. he's a generation. He's Brian's age, essentially. He's Brian's age, essentially. So he, he starts off as a sort of jobbing journalist, age 17, working for the uh, Hoylake and West Kirby advertiser. And then he moves on to the Liverpool Daily Post and Echo and then ultimately works his way up. And he's working for, these are newspapers from history, the News Chronicle, <laughs> the Sunday Dispatch, the Sunday Express, and he is also a regular columnist and theatre critic for the Daily Express. And in 1952, the Daily Express is huge. Yes. And it is worth pointing out that he is from Liverpool. He is, And yes. that's not immediately apparent if you've heard Derek Taylor talk, because he, he has this you know, very nice RP type pronunciation going on. And uh, he doesn't have the old Scouse lilt. And it's important to remember that he is from Liverpool, grew up a bit in Manchester, but this will play a role in his relationship with the Beatles. Yeah, and this is this is an era in the UK where received pronunciation, you know, you had to get rid of your accent if you were going to make it anywhere. Mm. And well, Brian Epstein is a version of that because mm. he's also a Scouser. He's from Liverpool, but he doesn't have the... He's a scouser. <laughs> is that is that a has t- anyone ever called Brian Epstein a scouser? But he is, isn't he? he? Is, but, like technically, you know, but he doesn't have the. All oh, right, yeah. You know, I'm not going to do the voice. Um, he, but he'd not get a part in Brookside. No, uh, like you know, when I, when I think of Beatle pronunciations, I think of Walter Raleigh. He's such a stupid get. Yes, that's not how Brian talked, no. and it's not how not Derek, how Derek Taylor, Taylor talked. No. Um, so he's basically a, a solid, upstanding, tax-paying citizen who works as a journalist for the Daily Express, a paper of record. Um, and he's, you know, as the 50s go into the 60s, you know, that's a pretty solid job. That is a pretty solid job. And he, he talks about this. He said, uh, you know, I've got the theatre job. And you could get in anywhere if you were on the Daily Express. Anyone would see you. Journalists weren't nasty about people in the theatre in those days. The worst that anyone was called was a hell racer. Those were the days. <laughs> um, yes. And, you know, they were, they, he talks about theatre people. They were always nursing a hangover, picking at prawns and spearing a cockle and all these horrible cliches. It's, it's, it's a different world. It really it? is a different world. It really is. And he, so, he is immersed in show business in the pre-Beatle universe. Yes. And, you know, we've talked before that we went to see, you know, Mark Lewison's 1962 show. And one of the things that Mark talks about is how the Beatles kind of changed entertainment and variety because it is quite sedate and respectful and it's managed and it's, you know, it's in theatres and all of that kind of thing. Yeah, very cliched. Yeah. And uh, yeah, 1962-63 does mark a watershed um, sort of before and after. And the, the critical date for Derek is the 30th of May, 1963, when he is asked to go and review the Beatles playing a live concert in Manchester. And it's generally thought that the notion was he's supposed to write a critical piece, that he's, you know, he's a, a theatre critic, yes. national press journalist. Here's the big teen fad of the day. May 1963, we all know where the Beatles were there. You know, they're they're on the up. They're number one in the album charts. Please, please me. It's just come out. For me, too, it's just come out. And he's sent to write, not necessarily a knocking piece, but thought of, you know. Well, yes, it is. It, you imagine there are a lot of slightly condescending, sarcastic, sneering pieces being written about the Beatles at this stage, about their long hair and the noise and the screaming girls and teenagers, etc., etc. And Derek, of course write something completely different. Yeah, and he's he's a 30-year-old man of the world at this point, but he just falls in love. Yeah. So what he says is, the Liverpool sign came to Manchester last night and I thought it was magnificent. 
indecipherable, meaningless nonsense, of course, but as beneficial and invigorating as a week on the bench of the pier head overlooking the Mersey. Yeah. So right from the beginning, you get a sense of his style of writing. Yes, he's, yeah. And I don't, I don't know, can I describe Derek Taylor's style? I know it when I hear it. Yeah. But it, it, it sort of has, and, you know, maybe later Derek Taylor press offerings are more infused with... Um, chemicals, but he kind of has a romanticism to it. There is a romanticism to it and it's a slightly oblique side to it. So, I mean, he writes that and you think, oh, that's wonderful. But then you think, would it be invigorating to spend a week on the bench of the pierhead overlooking the Mersey? Would that be invigorating? I don't, so so it, it conveys a sense of something without you having to actually break down the meaning of the sentence. Yes. And that that's either very engaging or very irritating. <laughs> well, he... With a journalist's nose, he sensed that this was something very special, that this was something happening. Yes. And he, he talks later about, from me to you, is number one at this point. And he says, it has always seemed to me that the true essence of the Beatles is to be found distilled in From Me to You. Boy, girl, love song it may have been, but it was also a universal offering spelled out with Liverpool directness and warmth and picked up by a whole generation, including from that night on, Joan and me, Joan being his wife. Though maybe at the wrong end of that generation, we were nevertheless open thereafter to the possibilities of being truly young in heart. And... I think that's true about that song. I mean, we talked about this before about going to see Paul in in, in 2018. And yep. that song, from me to you, is the song, was the kind of goose pimple moment, the hairs in the back of the neck. That is the song that sort of connected. Yeah, uh, it is true. And Derek has this thing of, um, you know, he, he's he's fully signed up to the band. The You know, if you think about the Beatles at that point in time, they didn't want anybody who was just along for the ride. They wanted people who were committed. Yeah. And so they had Brian Epstein, they had Neil Aspinall, they had Mal Evans. And Derek very quickly kind of becomes one of the people who is willing to do whatever it takes for the band. And, you know, later on in Anthology, there's another quote here, I was still only 30, but sufficiently unaware of the young world in mid-spring 1963 to have not heard of this rising phenomenon. I was working as a journalist for the Daily Express in Manchester and I went to cover a one night stand starring the Beatles and Roy Orbison. Uh, I watched the show and when two hours later it was all over, bar the screaming, I went to the telephone and dictated my review without a note just as it came and they printed it. I believed that in the Beatles the world had found the truest folk heroes of the century or indeed of any other time from that day, 30th of May, 1963, I have never wavered in my certainty that they painted a new rainbow of light across the world with crocks of gold at each end and then some. Blimey. He speaks for us all. I think. <laughs> well, you know, we've talked again about this Mark Lewis notion of 1962, they were lighting fires. And blimey, did they light a fire in Derrick. Yes, so he, that, that's him speaking in anthology and he, it seems a genuine expression of his regard for the band and his appreciation of the phenomenon that the Beatles were and, and, and would become. So he, he then, uh, the next month on the 19th of June, he has an opportunity to go and interview Brian Epstein and he talks about Brian and sort of saying, you know, his monogram shirt and his buckled shoes and this sniffy front. But because he was from Liverpool, because Derek is from Liverpool, that really cuts no ice or it doesn't intimidate him. And he, he just tells Brian how stunned he was and he becomes a sort of trusted member, a trusted journalist in their 
circle. And one of the jobs that lands to him is that there's this notion, since the Beatles are actually a hot proposition and could sell a few newspapers, it's time for that well-known columnist George Harrison to give his insights on the week's news. Yes. So the, um, uh, the, the, the Daily Express think this would be a great idea to have George Harrison or one of the Beatles and they settle on George. Well, why wouldn't you settle on George? Uh, and Derek Taylor is sort of involved in this and he is supposed to be sort of approving it or ghostwriting it to a certain extent. And uh, he does recount the fact that he, he was very upfront with George in an early interview. He ghostwrote something and then George said, what does that mean? And he said, well, I don't know. I just made it up. And the Beatles seem to have responded to this. Ah, right. You're just making stuff up. That This is great. And, and uh, you know, that he was on their wavelength. I'm shocked that journalists uh, working for the Daily Express were making things up, but it's true. Probably doesn't happen today. Probably doesn't happen today. <laughs> well, well, this was his first column where he sort of imagines a conversation between George and his dad. And George is like, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah. And the nice thing about it is that um, he passed this kind of test and George says, I'll help you write the column. And yeah. it is a bit of a, a job that they do it together. George doesn't totally hand it over to Derek. No, it is a collaborative uh, effort. And I think this cements Derek's relationship with George, which will be absolutely rock solid all the way through uh, uh, the rest of his life. George, you have a sense, is the person that he is closest with. Yeah, that does that does uh, that does run through the the next couple of decades of his relationship. That Derek and George have a particular type of bond. I have to admit, I don't. I haven't really read the George Harrison, Derek Taylor Express columns. Uh, or have you read them? Have you seen they, them? I have seen little bits and pieces of them. But that, that thinking of that, that they should be pulled together into a. I can sense a book here. There's a, definitely a book there. There's definitely like uh, they should all be in one place. I'm sure. They, I'm sure somebody has amassed them on some corner of the internet. I just haven't thought to look yet. So, yeah, he's he's doing this job. This is his first kind of test with the Beatles. He's becoming a trusted source. And then he perhaps gets a job that he didn't really want, but he felt he had to put his hand up for it anyway. Yes. So he's interviewing uh, Brian and Brian is talking about, uh, you know, his plans. And he, he says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to write my autobiography. And uh, <laughs> Derek writing in his book, 50 Years Adrift, which is a very hard book to get hold of. He said, uh, autobiography yet. And he was not even 30. I said, the only author I knew personally was Raymond Foxall, who was allowed every Tuesday off by the Sunday Express in Manchester to write romantic action-packed historical novels at home. <laughs> That's the job I want where I can get one day a week off to write romantic... Uh, Do you have a pseudonym chosen yet? I have to think about that. Yeah, that's, okay. Suggestions on a postcard? No, please. No more postcard. <laughs> so Brian said, I need someone modern I can get on with right away and trust, preferably someone who knows something about the boys. And Derek says, I saw before me an opening you could get an elephant <laughs> through. So he says, well, you know, I could do this. So he ends up going away with Brian for the weekend to a hotel to, to basically ghostwrite, uh, to interview Brian and uh, ghostwrite the autobiography. Yeah, he basically makes a load of recordings, um, pulling all of Brian's thoughts together and then tries to write it in, in Brian's voice. And it's a little bit of cash, but it's not a big money spinner for Derek. No, he, he says, you know, uh, you know, I got 2%, but the corollary to that is Brian got 98%. So, uh, and, and he said, uh, it shows that one should always read a contract, though even Brian himself was sometimes hasty. And I think that is such a, a sort of 
discreet way of saying, but I never read contracts either, you know. it's uh, But it is kind of the gateway that gets him more permanent work with the Beatles because the Express give him time off um, in April 1964 to spend these few days with Brian in a hotel to make the recordings, to get the, yeah. the basics of the, the book together. And there's a nice story where kind of Brian reveals to Derek his homosexuality and... It doesn't really matter to anyone. It doesn't really matter at all. And you think, given the times, given when this was happening, but uh, Derek says, in the first lunch hour, he said, I'm going to have to tell you now, did you know I was queer? No, I said, I didn't. Well, he said, I am. And if we're going to do this book, I'm going to have to stop buggering about saying I was with this girl when I was with a boy. Does that make any difference? No, I said, it does not make any difference. It'll make it a lot easier. So you mustn't worry any more. Difficult it may be to convince you, perhaps, but I won't ever let you down. Yeah, that's a very sweet, kind promise. But you also have to imagine if you've been um, if you've been a, a theatre writer in the West End for a number of years, you're not... Shocked. You're not shocked. And whatever gay culture was at that time, that Derek Taylor would have been aware of it. Yes. So essentially, out of this, he, he establishes this relationship with, with Brian and he offers him the opportunity to become his personal assistant in London for uh, £70 a week, which is £1,250 a week. In oh, modern money. I mean, considering how a lot of PA jobs now, they, they try not to pay people. You know, he didn't drag yeah. him in as an intern. It's not the worst job in the world. I'm not sure whether that was a, an, an upswing or a downswing from his Daily Express money. My sense is oh, it might not necessarily have been. It might upswing. not necessarily have been. But uh, he soon then sort of graduates to doing press releases for the Beatles, working as a point of contact, liaising between the band and the press. And uh, in January 1964, he's in Paris, where they're getting ready for their first trip to America. And, you know, we've said that Derek comes from Liverpool, but this was not immediately apparent to the Beatles. No. Yeah, they, they kind of have a go at him. And uh, is, is it John kind of says, you're pretending to be from Liverpool? Yeah. And, and Derek says, you know, we had a few drinks and this is a conversation took this difficult turn. And I said, I don't know about pretending, but anyway, I'm from Liverpool. And John said, yeah, born in Manchester. And I said, well, that's a narrow way of looking at it at the moment. I live in Manchester, but a lot of people are not born where they happen to live, et cetera, et cetera. So he said, I was born in Liverpool, lived in West Kirby. My wife's from Birkenhead. That's a badge <laughs> of honour. But there is still this sense in January 1964, the Beatles are still OK, but they, they don't regard him as one of one of their own. And then, you know, Derek says they got very, very drunk. And after that, everything was, uh, well, was fine. For him to be in the room in January 64, and again, he's not on the payroll at this point, he, he can kind of see what is coming over the hill. Because obviously yeah. in January 1964, um, as any good Beatlehead would know, they're doing their residency in Paris, as I want to hold your hand, is rocketing up the charts uh, over the course of three weeks to get to number one in the US. So by the end of their Paris run, they're number one in the US and they're heading off to the the um, the US to do the Ed Sullivan show. See many serious uh, episodes of NIR in the past to tell you that story. But he can see that this is going to be a red hot thing. He wants to be the guy on the streets in America reporting for the Daily Express for this. Yes, so he's there. He's on the the first concert tour, and uh, he he talks to uh, uh, other members of the press, and and he said, you know, it was weird. People, the roots were lined with solid cripples threw away their sticks. Sick people rushed up to touch the car as if a touch from one of the boys would make them well again. Old women stood watching with their grandchildren, and as we passed by, I could see the look on their faces. It was as if some savior had arrived. So he's absolutely there firsthand to witness this phenomenon that is Beatlemania. 
And this 1964 year is obviously a pivotal year in the Beatles universe, but it is pivotal for Derek because it's a short, sharp shock in a way. He, he He's hanging around with them at the start of the year. He's getting into their confidence. He, you know, starts doing Brian's book in April. By May, he's out of the Daily Express and he's on their payroll and he's following the Beatles on tour, being their press guy. So they're doing their first big US concert tour in the summer of 64. And by that point, he is he is totally embedded in the group yeah. and he is, as you say, he's kind of witnessing all this kind of backstage shenanigans of the people with crutches uh, uh, and all the rest. But he's also experiencing Brian and what he gets to see that side of Brian that Brian keeps from the Beatles. Yes, I mean, we touched on this uh, on our Brian episodes, but he, he refers to uh, Brian's sort of full-on control freakery mm. so that Brian would ask him to do something, hoping perhaps that it would fail so that Brian could say, well, if I had done it, it, would, it wouldn't have been done that way and it would have been done right. And this starts to get to Derek fairly quickly. He, he sort of sees this side of Brian and he says, if I made a mess of something, even though the Beatles would be in that mess, Brian would be happy because I'd gained no control over them. He would say, go ahead, but this is doomed. I look forward to speaking to you about it afterwards. And he says in, in the Philip Norman uh, biography, he's quoted as saying, I joined in April and by May he was treating me with massive cruelty. So after having, there are a series of sort of rise and fallings out. He resigns from his position at the end of the tour in September. And um, Derek's book, As Time Goes By, was reprinted a few years ago. And John Savage did a, an introductory paragraph or two on that. And he said, Brian was on pills. Derek was on pills. They don't make you behave in a very stable manner. They had a furious row about who was going to go on a limousine, which just shows you how serious it was. And they made up the next morning, but Derek had had enough. He had a family, a wife, two or three children by then. And I think that was the key point. Brian didn't have a wife and family, so he just worked and worked. But I think Derek just found it all too much really in the short term. So Derek hands in his notice. Yeah, very, very kind of very, very short period of time. And I, I I think, you know, if we're trying to find a bit of sympathy for Brian, Brian finds himself in uh, a position that nobody else knows what to deal with. You know, dealing with the biggest band in the world, Brian isn't made of the stuff of, say, Colonel Tom Parker is. And, you know, if he's going to lash out somewhere, you could argue he lashes out at Derek because yeah. he trusts him. Brian is very good at keeping a front on and keeping lots of stuff unknown to the wider world. So the fact that he was having a go at Derek, you could argue, was because he felt that he could have a go at Derek you yes, know, without yes. having any kind of repercussions of it. But as you say, when, when the touring kind of ends in September, after only weeks on the payroll, Derek says, I am out of here. But Brian says, you owe me a three-month notice period, buddy. Yeah. Yes. Oh, good. <laughs> so he makes, him, he makes him work three three months notice, but at least that gives them the opportunity to sort of reconnect and Brian says to him, Derek, you and I, we do get along. When we get along, we do get along. And Derek says, well, we do, Brian, but. And he says, quote, and it was such a relief to leave. I couldn't imagine why I'd ever wanted to join them. As long as we could still be friends, that was fine. Just let's get out of here and go back to newspapers. So he does that and he moves away and he moves to Los Angeles. Well, not before he delivers one of the great pieces of Beatle-related text, which are the sleeve notes on the back of Beatles for Sale. So they are a Derek Taylor creation. And let's all uh, re-familiarise ourselves with the sleeve notes from Beatles for Sale from, uh, don't forget, the end of 1964. 
When, in a generation or so, a radioactive cigar-smoking child picnicking on Saturn asks you what the Beatle affair was all about, did you really know them? Don't try and explain all about the long hair and the screams. Just play the child a few tracks from this album and he'll probably understand what it was all about. The kids of AD 2000 will draw from the music much the same sense of well-being and warmth as we do today. And I remember back in 2000 sitting with some children on Saturn and that's exactly how we felt. Exactly how we all felt. Um, But what I kind of find amazing about this story is that here is a guy who is essentially, you know, a square maybe, perhaps. He's 30 years of age. He's married with kids. He's a journalist for the Daily Express. He goes to a Beatles concert in May 1963 and then 18 months later, he has seen some things and decides... I need to go to Los Angeles. I need to get out of here. For a rest. For a rest. And so he takes a break. So I think we should take a break. End of part one. Intermission. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. End of intermission. Part two. Welcome back. So the Derek Taylor story, we're at the end of 1964. He's done with Brian Epstein. And although he threatens to go back to the newspapers, what he actually does is head off for Los Angeles, California, a man in his early 30s with a wife and kids. And he kind of lands on his feet. Yeah, what could go right? Uh, <laughs> Everything. He, he ends up becoming the PR for an unknown group called uh, The Birds. And they very quickly become a known group. They do. And he lucks out even more because in lieu of immediate payment, he accepts a share in the band's earnings. And within a few months, they have a worldwide hit with Mr. Tambourine Man. And he is absolutely right back in the eye of the storm. I find this story very interesting because Derek, um, as you say, is in the eye of the storm. But he's he obviously has learned a lot from his time you know, in Brian's universe and in the Beatles universe, he, as we said in the first part there, he's seen a few things. And so he knows how to, I guess, deal with the personalities, but he knows how to get promo. He knows how to get attention. And what I said right back at the start is there are certain ways we look at the Beatles and other groups and we look at them today because of the way Derek Taylor presented them and the connections he made. Yes. So he, as you say, he's he's learning in the best possible way or in the best possible place. And he, he just applies these skills that he's learned to uh, what he's doing with the birds. And specifically, he very clearly and purposefully touts them as the new Beatles or the American equivalent of the Beatles. So he's he's deliberately setting up that uh 
that comparison. And that is a comparison that sticks to the birds to today. And it's you could argue, well, that's not the most obvious thing to say. This is the American Beatles. And we, we, we've had discussions about the actual American Beatles before on a separate uh, episode. But he kind of, uh, his words kind of have weight. I think that's true. And he in LA must be seen, he, he has a certain cachet because he's come from the Beatles. Yes. So th- there is this thing, the whole British invasion going on, and he is part of that, and he is is seen in that way. And it, it is a recurring thing that he will reference the Beatles. He will go yeah. back to using the Beatles as a kind of uh, benchmark. But his cachet, uh, yeah, his cachet isn't that, oh, you used to work for the Express. It is definitely the Beatles. What I kind of like about the relationship is the Beatles don't really have a problem with this per se. And the Beatles are very protective about people kind of skiving off them or getting something out of them. Whereas Derek is generally given license to to, to use his, for want of a better term, Beatle passport to get things done. Yes, I think that's right. But but I think a lot of that is down to the fact that, you know, the Beatles like the birds. The Beatles like the Beach Boys. These these are the people that Derek is, is promoting and doing PR for. And this is, they are the Beatles peer group. Yeah, and, and it, it, it kind of comes back to that Derek-Brian comparison. Derek has taste, I would say, the way Brian did. You yes. know, he, he, he knows where the good stuff is. He's not a... Um, you know, he's not kind of a, a huckster for the sake of it. No, absolutely not. But he is right in the centre of, I suppose, that LA counterculture that's, mm. that's developing, that West Coast that's developing at the time. So there is a shift in sort of 65, 66, 67. Things are moving from England, from London, from swinging London to the West Coast of America. And another thing that Derek did that casts a long shadow is you mentioned there he was involved with the Beach Boys. And obviously 1966 is the year of Pet Sounds. But I think the, the, the thing that Derek did that still casts a shadow today is he is very involved in this notion of getting Brian Wilson recognised as a genius, yes. which is not something that was done with pop stars at the time. No. And I suppose with hindsight, we can say, was that a good thing or a bad thing uh, <laughs> in terms of Brian's uh, psyche? And, and Brian's kind of psychological stability. But certainly he is pushing the Beach Boys very hard and specifically uh, the pet sounds, the good vibrations around that period. And he's writing in Discon Music Echo and he says, the Beach Boys have a giant monster mountainous world topping vast rolling ocean mixed metaphor of a hit of hits in Good Vibrations, a record which, before the first copy is even in the stores, is named with total abandon by disc jockeys as a certain number one. And that makes it so. Yep, it does. And he's, you know, when we when we read or hear about this notion of, you know, the Beatles being aware of pet sounds and trying to compete with pet sounds and there's Revolver and pet sounds and Pepper and hmm. Good Vibrations and all this kind of stuff. Derek is in that mix. Derek is the guy essentially joining these people yeah. together. Yeah, yeah. He's the, he's the sort of a conduit there, uh, facilitating meetings and, and, and introductions and uh, you know, he's involved with the birds, the Beach Boys, Captain Beefheart, etc. Yeah. And uh, there was something that I thought I had discovered, a, a piece of new research. Go um, on. If you know those photographs of John Lennon sitting in his living room in, in Kenwood, he has a, a white cupboard beside the fire and has a little safe as milk yes. sticker. Which is a Captain Beefheart which record. Is Captain Beefheart record and presumably the same font and everything. It's a promotional sticker. George has one on the back door of Kinfons. And I, I sort of thought, oh, there you go, Derek has, has given them 
a copy of sort of introduced them to Captain Beefheart. But uh, I discussed this with Mike Nesmith before his untimely death, and he said <laughs> I was soon. wrong. Oh, yeah. Well, what's like Nesmith references this in his uh, autobiography, Infinite Tuesday, where he um, he he visits John in his uh, Kenwood home, and you know John is in his breakfast den, and he's he's examining the cover of Safe as Milk. Uh, from Captain Beefheart and his magic band and, and to, to pick up on Nesmith what he writes is I was surprised and happy to see the album because I had been at those sessions in LA and made a friend with Beefheart an artist of extraordinary scope who wore a smock and a perfect diamond soul patch one of the producers of that album Bob Crunchow had been a close friend as well as well as my manager and record producer before I got the job on the Monkeys TV show so for a moment at John and Cynthia's house it was as if John, Beef, Kraz and I were all friends in the same room I was sure Bob and Don would be happy to know that John was aware of the record and maybe even a fan of it. Maybe he could even be part of our band of avant-garde LA artists. Don had played an electric flower sifter on the record, probably the next big rock and roll instrument. I asked John if he liked the album and he said he hadn't heard it. <laughs> he had just received it unsolicited in the mail and was wondering what it was and was curious why it was there. I was a little deflated. It was the fastest breakup of any band I had been in. Oh, that's sad. I mean, maybe Derek had been the person to pop maybe. it in the post. You would have to assume so. Maybe. Um, but uh, yeah, what, what what could have been? Derek was also involved in the release of the Sloop John B um, single and he's in the video. There was he's, a video he, made Yes, for he directs the video. So this is the, the black and white video, but this is where they're sort of the Beach Boys are. I think the phrase is dicking around. In, uh, is that what the kids say? In... Uh, Brian Wilson's swimming pool and they're sort of marching in and out carrying an inflatable raft etc etc it's hilarious but uh, if you want to just pause that at 26 27 seconds in you can see Derek the mustachioed PR I don't think he has a moustache in it actually does he not has I he taken his moustache mus- I don't off think his moustache has arrived yet oh dear that's still on the way you know 67 there's a lot of nobody has moustaches then everyone has moustaches <laughs> um, but while he is in LA perhaps his biggest contribution to popular culture in LA is the Monterey Pop Festival, which Derek is very much, you know, one of the key organisers of. Yes, so he's he's on the organising committee and this is a three-day music festival uh, in June 1967. And it's, you know, this is where we get to see Jimi Hendrix, The Who, Ravi Shankar, Janis Joplin, uh, Otis Redding, etc., etc. Paul McCartney is a member of the governing board the organising committee and he recommended Hendrix and uh, it came you know from a standing start seven weeks it's John Phillips and the Mamas and Papas uh, Lou Adler etc and uh, Derek are all behind this and uh, there's some suggestion at the beginning you know will the Beatles be there will they not be there Uh, Brian Jones turns up and you see him wandering around but what the Beatles do do is they send a poster they do send a poster and it's one of these few works of art that the Beatles all worked on together. So again, you know, this is June 1967. Pepper has just come out. The Beatles are not touring, as we all know, but they are the predominant cultural force. So they they do an illustration with felt marker, coloured pencil and ink, and it says, Peace to Monterey, and from Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Sincerely, John, Paul, George and Harold. <laughs> Harold, he's the fifth Beatle. He's the fifth he's Beatle. He's the fifth Beatle. So, so th- there is this original, uh, this original poster and uh, the poster, the, the art organiser uh, for the programme is a guy called Tom Wilkes and uh, he kept the poster and uh, he died in 2009 and the poster was sold for £175,000. Yeah, that seems in 2015. cheap. It does seem cheap. It does seem cheap. We talked recently about the poster that was found in the restaurant that's going yes, to be the sold. Tablecloth, yeah. The tablecloth, and that's the kind of money that that tablecloth should be should be selling for. It is amazing that uh, Monterey happened 
um, so quickly. As you say, it was about seven or eight weeks that it went. And it is worth just considering that point in time because back at the start when he sees the Beatles for the first time in May 1963, they are on a variety circuit playing in a theatre. And what they have done in the intervening four years is to, you know, the Beatles have played the first ever concerts in a you know sports arena you know in a, in a in baseball grounds and all the rest and this kind of leads to Monterey which is the first festival of its kind every Glastonbury I know we'd had like jazz and blues festivals and all the rest but Monterey um, is very much this Derek notion of getting pop music or rock music or whatever you want to call it treated as a serious art form like jazz and blues and so you know the seeds of everything we see today in Coachella and Glastonbury and Woodstocks and all the rest it all goes back to Monterey where Derek Taylor was there all starts here it all starts starts here here. Um, and throughout all of this as we've said the the Beatles are keeping in touch so whenever Derek is doing something the Beatles are in the background whether it's you know big upping you know the Beach Boys and Pet Sounds whether it's sending their poster off to to Monterey they they spend a little time with Derek when they're visiting on on US tours and they, they meet Derek facilitates a meeting with Brian Wilson Yes, so uh, August 1966, they, they get to hear uh, Good Vibrations and that, that sort of facilitation continues. So once they finish Pepper, early April 1967, Paul goes to the US to, to visit uh, Jane Asher, who's, who's touring, and he's kind of just hanging out. And uh, he, he's staying with Derek in LA and Derek takes him to a Beach Boys recording session. And this is where Paul plays Brian Wilson uh, as sort of an acetate of She's Leaving Home. Mm. How does and that go down? That goes down really well. <laughs> so this is this is again this this rivalry because Paul, according to Ian McDonald, Paul actually says, "Here's our new song. You better not hang around too long with your response to Revolver because we're we're about to put uh, this out on the new album." So again, this feeds into Brian Wilson's this this sense of competition, and you know Paul talks about this and uh, the meeting, and it's all very jolly and all very nice. Brian Wilson, uh, January 1968, he says of that interview, it was a little uptight. We didn't really seem to hit it off. It didn't really flow. It didn't really go too good. (laughs) Well, we should, you know, in case people aren't up to date on their Pet Sands uh, or their Beach Boys history, the Pet Sands comes out in 66 and the expectation is that high for Brian Wilson to follow this up. So this is the famous album Smile. Yes. Uh, the album that never happens until there was a box set about 10 years ago or so. And Brian tries to do a version about 20 years ago. But it is one of these great, unfinished, unreleased projects. So yeah. it is not for Paul McCartney to know that he is landing in the midst of sessions for an album that's going to be, you know, mythical in nature, pulled from the stores, never going to come to fruition and is being helmed by a man who is in a precarious state of mental health, to put it mildly. Yeah, you know, Paul is looking at Brian Wilson as being one of his peers. Uh, He's very admiring of his work. There is a sort of Beach Boys quality to, you know, things like Penny Lane, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly that instrumental version that was on the box set. Also, She's Leaving Home is probably the most Beach Boys-like song that's going to come out on Pepper. And for Paul, this is just a friendly rivalry. This is yeah. a kind of competition. But Brian is tipping over into paranoia at this point. He's becoming, his drug use is quite significant. I don't know that it's more significant than the Beatles' <laughs> drug use at this time, but he cannot handle it. And uh, it is feeding into a sense of paranoia. And it's around this time that rumours start circulating that Derek, having been the, the conduit and the person who's facilitating these interactions between the two band, Brian starts to believe or hear rumours that Derek is playing the Beatles early yeah. demos or tapes or session. And according to Van Dyke Parks, he said Wilson felt 
very sad and began questioning the loyalties of the people who were working for him, specifically Derek Taylor. Yes. And so there's kind of a series of events where the scales tip Derek Taylor from Beach yeah. Boys LA land back into the kind of the, the, the Beatles universe. And, you know, Paul, we could say, is just being innocent. It doesn't matter whether he's rocking up in a studio with an acetate or he's sitting down in a pub at the piano to play Hey Jude to the people of um, Harold. Obviously, the, 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 the guy who's the fifth Beatle on yes. the poster. <laughs> it's all connected. Um, but, you know, this is not necessarily Paul's intention, but all bets are off in terms of Brian Wilson's decision making at, at this point in yeah. time. Paul is just never off. Yeah. yeah. He never switches, no, he off. Never switches he's just, off. He's just writing all the time. And Michael Voss, Brian's assistant at the time, said, you know, Derek Taylor was an absolutely stellar good guy. The band was a tad skittish about him about the time Good Vibrations came out because of his ties to the Beatles. On April, the end of April, April 29th, Derek writes in Disc and Music Echo that all the 12 songs for the new Beach Boys album, that Smile, are completed and there are plans to release the album on a rush schedule any minute. But the same day, he publishes a press release saying that the single Heroes and Villains was delayed due to technical difficulties and that the forthcoming lead single would be Vegetables. You know that track, Vegetables? Well, it's got Paul McCartney on it. It has, it has. It's not good. He's munching a carrot. Yes. And which he which is an instrument he reprised for? Super Furry Animals. Super Furry Animals. You will get me on that. <laughs> receptacle for the respectacle on Rings Around the World. Paul McCartney is munching a carrot. So, uh, two days later, a session for Smile is cancelled on the 1st of May. And by the 6th of May, a week after he said, it's about to be released any minute, Taylor announces it's been scrapped. So... All of the, you know, you could argue that this kind of mythical album, and it is a myth that hangs around this album for decades, and even now that they've released the sessions as a box set, it is still a mythical album. People still argue over, you know, what what was the track listing and what should it have been and what should it have been. There is an argument to be made that all of this is the fault of Derek Taylor. Yes, yes. (laughs) Oh, it's a rabbit hole. If you go down those conspiracy theories, there's the rumours about Paul stealing some of the master tapes from Brian's studio, bugging the studio. The fact that A Day in the Life is very similar to Surf's Up. I don't know that that's the case. Derek sabotaging the sessions. It's honestly, you do not want to go there. Yes, and... What is kind of happening with all of this, if you you keep the timeline in mind, is all of this is going down in May 1967. He's involved in organising Monterey in June 67. Paul is going back and forth because Sergeant Pepper is getting pressed up and being released into the store. So he's doing... He's kind of what you might call his own personal PR for, yeah. the, for the album going around and meeting like minds. Um, but there is this kind of draw that is bringing Derek Taylor back to the UK. And even though he is, you know, got his sleeves rolled up and is waiting for um, Monterey to happen, he accepts an invite to a party um, on Sunday, the 28th of May, 1967. That's, you would go to that. Well, you know, it is the week that Pepper is coming out and it is a party thrown by... Ryan Epstein. And it is at Kingsley Hill, his country home uh, out in Sussex, which we mentioned in our, our Brian Epstein. Uh, so he has, his, he has his London pad and he has his country home where he likes to socialise and have parties at the weekend. So he's given two days notice, mm. but Derek and Joan just get on a plane, fly 6,000 miles uh, to attend the party, despite, as you say, being in the middle of organising Monterey and doing the press for Smile. Yeah. And he... Uh, he, he, he it is a significant uh, party because of, what would you say, um, how things 
were partook of. <laughs> I'm looking at my notes and it just says drugs. There's a lot of drugs at the party. So Derek and his wife, Joan, rock up at an airport uh, and they're collected by John Lennon, George Harrison, Ringo Starr and Terry Doran and uh, Barry Finch, who's, who's one of the, the Fool uh, design collective who've been involved in um, the pepper sleeve. And Derek sort of describes this incident as uh, their brains seemed somewhat apart from their bodies and yet they were not drunk or reeling or grinding their teeth. The other passengers stood and stared and so did we. And they don't initially go to Brian straight away. No. So what happens is John takes everybody to Kenwood. George goes back to Kinfawns. Derek is dressed in his blazer, his grey flannel slacks and his tie. So he, you know, he's... he's <laughs> he did not get the memo. He did not get the memo. He's been away from London. He's flying back and he's just dressed the same. And uh, he, he talks in, in 50 Years Adrift, he said, when we got to George's house, we saw for the first time what young psychedelic women were wearing for parties. Glittering flowing robes of beautiful colours with velvet here and there and all absolutely original. These were the fairest of flower children as they walked through the Claremont estate of suburban Esher, They made an indelible impression. Already it was Wonderland and no one had put anything in our tea yet. So they head off in three cars. Harrison is on LSD while driving his Mini with Patty in the car. He seems to do that a bit. He does. And uh, Derek and his wife, Joan, are offered a nice cup of tea. One for the teetles here. Very, yes. very straightforward. Yep. Nothing nothing wrong with that. But this is not just the tea that you and I would like to have a glass of or a cup no. of. No. no. So again, in 50 Years Adrift, uh, Derek says, John, who had been sitting with us on the lawn, said he'd just given Joan some acid in her tea. And would I like some in mine? Sure, why not? He snapped the tablet in two, gave me a portion about two thirds of the total. That'll do to start with, he said cheerfully, dropping the tiny jagged pink pill into my cup. Stir it up well, there's a good lad. George came by and said, what are you giving them? What do you think, said John. Oh, said George. Derek's, um, but I had already drained it. And George's tea too. Derek's already had, well, it's too late now, George laughed. Derek's had a double dose. Yeah, and, and it's probably worth mentioning as well that Joan, his wife, is seven months pregnant. Yes. And full of LSD. I'm outraged by that. <laughs> I, yes, I can understand why you'd be outraged by that. Uh, at the most, you could say, well, they just thought that they were on the crest of a new wave of discovery and it had no harmful effect at all. Naivety. Is that what you're pleading? <laughs> yes. Um, naivety at best, uh, stupidity at, at worst. But Derek had taken 500 micrograms of uh, Osley Stanley sourced LSD. Pretty strong stuff. Is that a lot, Doctor? Uh, I, I think so. Who knows? And, <laughs> uh, and he was heading off for a big, strong uh, trip. So Derek says himself, before long, I found myself swimming like a parcel of Esher lizards through the lines of a purple jigsaw of increasing and then decreasing size. What the hell's going on? I asked, crying with laughter. You're tripping, said Joan, with a new vocabulary already. Tripping? Me? Are you tripping? I asked Joan. She nodded lovingly. We all are, George said. Everyone is. Oh, geez. Happy days. Happy days. Um, but he did take this double dose and he started to freak out a bit. Yeah, but George Harrison, whose best mate. His best mate is there. So ha George you know, spots the warning signs that Derek is having a bad trip, man. And he sort of talks him down, despite the fact that he's tripping himself. Yeah. You know, so he kind of talks him down and this seems to work and, and Taylor recounts the fact that the rest of the trip was filled with talking, laughter, visions. He and his wife rebonded over the experience and uh, they led a sing-along on Epstein's piano. So everybody <laughs> is having a wonderful time. 
everybody. Well, not quite everybody. Um, poor old Cynthia Lennon, who is not having a good time and is not being talked down off her trips and is not being minded or cared <laughs> for. And it's just like, it's it's kind of heartbreaking. But, yeah. you know, she talks in her book that, uh, you know, she's trying to keep up with the cool kids, but it's just it's not just, working. It's out. just not working. And she's she's hoping that John is going to help her out with this trip. And, and uh, she writes in, in her 1978 book, Twist of Lennon, John moved away from me. I followed hoping that he could in some way comfort and support me, but John was not happy. He was not enjoying the experience as he had before. He ignored me and glared as though I was an intruding stranger. And she does say that, you know, she is absolutely distraught by the rejection. And I suppose that is amplified by the LSD experience. And she sort of retreats to a bedroom and she says she contemplated suicide. Uh, she said, I felt desolate. I sat on the windowsill of an upstairs room, contemplating the long drop to the paving stones below, musing to myself that it really wasn't that far down and that I could even jump. I was drifting into a very deep depression. I knew that all hope for John and I carrying on with our marriage in the same vein flew out of that upstairs window with my thoughts. Poor Cynthia. It is tragic. It is tragic. It is tragic. And, uh, you know, we, we've talked about this before. We've talked about it so much before. We have. Um, <laughs> That's our new catchphrase. It's our new catchphrase. Cynthia, you know, she does get a bad rap. And I suppose we're sort of, you know, making light uh, of her predicament. But but she is in a position where she just can't cope with this. She's not on the same wavelength. Her husband is moving on. The Beatles are moving on. Everybody that she's grown up with is moving on into this. And she is just deeply deeply unhappy but uh, it's a very human story and cliques and drugs and alcohol can be very divisive amongst groups of people and Cynthia just was not there like whereas Derek and Joan are quite happy to sign up for the trip absolutely this is their this is they're absolutely in so this 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 idea that he flies from uh, the west coast of America to Brian's house for a launch party of an album, and then suddenly this this is just opens an entire new world to him. It's odd, it seems to me, that he hadn't tried LSD before if he was living on the west coast of America, because the LSD they were taking had come from the west coast of America. <laughs> and it it is amazing, you know, in terms of the dates. You know, the first time he sees the Beatles is the thirtieth of May sixty three. This yeah. is the twenty eighth of May sixty seven. It is four years later, and it is an event that is a a crossroads for Derek Taylor. He has been with the Beatles, he's been in LA, um, but he has had the windows of perception open. Sgt. Pepper is hitting the shelves and two weeks later, Monterey Festival is about to happen. But he is definitely um, at a crossroads. And, you know, to, to go back to what, um, you know, John Savage said, Derek was an independent PR in LA for two years. And not only did he rep the birds, he really hoisted the Beach Boys up and around this time of good vibrations. But there's this wonderful story of him where he's going for a ride with Brian Wilson in John Lennon's Rolls Royce, I think. And Brian Wilson was obsessed with the Beatles. And he turned around to Derek and asked, well, the Beatles are always going to be number one for you, aren't they? And expecting the answer to be no. But Derek Taylor said, yeah, I'm sorry, they are. And that was the end of it. And I think that might be where we end it for part one and the continuing adventures of Derek Taylor and what Derek does next. We remain available in all the usual places on Twitter at BeatlesPod, the Nothing's Real Facebook group, www.nothingisrealpod.com, the website which has links to all the interesting bits and pieces, including our Acast Plus universe with all the extra episodes and bits and pieces. And thank you for all the people who are subscribing already. And um, we will be back next time with the continuing adventures of Derek Taylor. I'm Jason Carty. I'm Stephen Cockcroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.